going. Let's do it, babe. Come on. Let's go. Uh, hi, this is For the Girls Podcast. I am Nick Westray. I'm Jason Black. Uh, this is a podcast about <laughs> queer people and their obsession with female performers, also known as divas. Yes, this is. Uh, sometimes we cover uh, the a full career of one diva, or sometimes we just cover the works of some divas. Sometimes it's multiple mm-hmm. divas. It's all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Sometimes we just go to Cobbett Cove and hang out there for a while. We do all mm-hmm. kinds of things. We do album reviews. We do. We watch television shows that you don't watch. We also watch really old movies. Jason, who's this a podcast for? This. Uh, this is a podcast for the Ten Commandments of Divadom. Oh, this is a podcast for ex-vaudevillian female companions. Uh, this podcast is for girls as pure as New York snow. This is a podcast for understudies. This is a podcast for my bumpy ride-or-die bitches. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. I'm ending there. Who do we have? Who do we we have? have. I'm so excited about this. We've been wanting him on since we started this podcast. This week, we have on journalist Mark Harris, friend of the podcast, amazing writer, film knowledge supreme master. Hi, Mark. Hi, not Hi, not intimidating at all. And Mark and I share the exact same opinions. So I'm just going to agree. <laughs> I'm that smart. I can just agree with everything you say. This will be very fast. Yeah. It'll, it'll, be re- it'll be really easy. Um, and I'm going to shamelessly plug. Mark has a book coming out in February that I've been waiting for ever since I heard he was writing it. It's called Mike Nichols, A Life. And uh, everyone should pre-order it for everyone they know for Christmas and then just write them a little note, tell them they're going to get it on February 2nd. That's right. It's the perfect gift for someone you're feeling kind of passive aggressive about. And you want to say, like, I got you a present, but you're not getting it for six weeks. Exactly. It's perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, send it to them on Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) That's really good. good Yes. Yes. Oh, how are you, Mark? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. Good. This is our um, Thanksgiving ta- episode, right? This is the Thanksgiving this is, week. This is Thanksgiving week. And what are we gobble, talking gobble, about, gobble. Mark? Who's your who's your who are your divas this week? Well, we're talking all about all about Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all which, about this podcast. Which I think I think Nick, you pointed out that there's like you know, an array of of uh, women you can choose from just in this movie. I mean, we have uh, Betty Davis, we have Ann Baxter, we have um, uh, Celeste Holm, we have Thelma Ritter, who mm-hmm. I would certainly qualify as a diva, and Hot, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Oh, Mar- oh, it's too... And, and George Sanders, who is like almost a woman. He's in playing this, a diva. In this movie. Yes, he is it's, a diva. He's the so many controversial takes on Addison. Oh my God. Oh, Addison Duet. I mean, I was obsessed with uh, all of these divas except for Ann Baxter, really, as a kid, but kind of obsessed with Ann Baxter because of the Ten Commandments. But I was obsessed with Thelma Ritter since uh, How the West Was Won which I don't know why my dad made me watch a lot when I was a kid. And I was like, this lady is for me. <laughs> That really falls under, like, they should have known. Like, you watched How the West Was Won, and your takeaway was Thelma Ritter. (laughs) More Thelma Ritter movies, please. (laughs) Six-time Academy Award nominee Thelma Ritter, and this was her first nomination. Right. And I think maybe her greatest 
you know, her, her, the greatest of all Thelma Ritter uh, moments are, are for me in, in this movie, although she's really wonderful in other ones too. When was the first time you saw this movie? Can you remember? Oh gosh. I think it was, I think it was in a, a movie theater, um, like a revival theater when those existed. Uh, I, I, I want to say downtown and I, I feel like it was in the presence of like older, like older gay men. Um, mm. Like I, I was pretty young and there were, definitely people in the audience i think who knew every reference and and were laughing like in advance of things and and you could feel like some scenes begin and there'd be this collective intake of air because they knew what was coming and i didn't so it was it was a little like um watching it through this filter of old gay knowledge which probably meant that like i actually didn't see the movie that clearly the uh the first time that 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 i was watching it through this kind of like very high level gay static well it's kind of like because they were treating it as camp right like as well i don't know i mean it was i don't know if they were treating it with camp because i think what was really being expressed was sort of pure love at the screen i mean it wasn't mm. you know there because there's the great thing is there's nothing about i don't think there's anything about uh the movie that is unintentionally funny like it it knows where its laughs are it knows where its wit is and you know there's certain things there's certain moments when like a couple of actors don't seem entirely in on the joke um but but mostly everybody's on the same page and like they know exactly what they're doing. And that's one of the things I think that's really exciting about it. Well, do you think it's, there's a campy lens to it? Cause I think, I feel like the wit is more sardonic and it depends on how you define campiness. Like it's, you know, it definitely takes place in this oversized world of um, the theater. And also like, interestingly, in this oversized world of women where although the playwright is a man and the director is a man and the critic is a man, um, this is a story that's really run by the women in it. Um, you know, so it's kind of a world that they own. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, camp to me but it does feel like almost the imagining of an alternate universe in 1950 in which you know like because notoriously in all about eve the two unambiguously straight men bill the director and lloyd the playwright are both kind of lumps you know they're 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 not really interesting as people and when they're they each have like a couple of witty things to say, but mainly they're not as good at doing that as the women are, you know? Yeah. I was so bored with Lloyd at the beginning of the movie and his whole treatise on the theater to Eve. (laughs) I was like, Oh gosh, Betty change that clothes faster, please. Right. Or, or when Bill, you know, goes into that rant about you and all your barroom benzedrine, you know, like yeah. when, when the men go off on people, except of course for Addison. Yes. Um, it's not that interesting. It's not that great. When the women do, it's always 
fantastic and it's it's often really concise like it's not a really long rant it's it's um it's birdie saying when she gets like this all of a sudden she's playing hamlet's mother or you know i'm I'm going (laughs) into the bathroom until you get normal um that whole first birdie bathroom birdie in the bathroom for hours i've been (laughs) thinking about this uh, movie over the past week as like what are my four favorite moments of these four women in the film? And for me with Birdie, it's the moment where she comes out of that bathroom. She decides she's going to be a part of this and hear what Eve has to say at the top of the movie. And she lances into Eve like that right after Eve has turned on literally the violins playing under her big sob story of her past. And Birdie comes right at her with what a story. Everything but the bloodhound snapping at her rear end. There are some human experiences, Birdie, that do not take place in a vaudeville house. And that even a fifth-rate vaudevillian should understand and respect. Right. Like, she's the only character in the movie. The teeth, the fangs. Like, she knows knows the truth about everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, even Addison, you could say there's there's probably a part at the beginning of the movie where he's fooled where he's taken in um by eve but right but birdie never is which leads to like one of the great enduring mysteries of all about eve which is what happens to birdie like where where does she go where does she go i mean i was thinking that in the scene where betty davis is when margo is reading the article uh, addison's article aloud to karen i was like why isn't birdie in the scene Right. You she still really lives wonder. in the house. Like, after the party, she's gone, right? I mean, it's not a short movie. You know, it's over two hours. So I can imagine why they didn't want to make it longer. Although, of course, I love every minute of it. Yeah. Um, but but it you, you really want Birdie back for one, like, rounding it all out scene in the last third of the movie. It's, it's always been, like, a disappointment that we don't get that. Yeah, or you want her to have been at the Sarah Siddon Society or something. <laughs> right. You know, like <laughs> totally. Getting Margot's coat at In the, the end. coat room, I was gonna say. <laughs> you know, or she should be working the bar. <laughs> oh, man, but well, talk about just stealing a whole movie. Okay, Fuck. let me do this. Let me do this. I'm gonna out myself. I'm gonna come out of the closet to the gay wolves. Come out and be come torn out. to pieces. This was my first time seeing this movie. It's never too late. Uh, thank you. Thank you. At, at 24, <laughs> at 24, I'm, I'm so long in the tooth that <laughs> yeah, now with the mask and they don't, and they, and they still don't even ask for my ID. I'm like, oh, well, there we are. <laughs> you can't even see my face and you're not going to card me. Have it. The, uh, <laughs> the eyes, the eyes give it away, isn't it, my friend? So um, how was your first time? Well, so here's the thing with Birdie and everything. It, I, you know, all about Eve seems like an art, you know, um, the architecture of women's films and a certain dynamic that that seems now tale as old as time for me. And so I was really ready for the full blown melodrama and catfighting that I think a lot of films have tried to mimic and kind of done so with a lot of lesser success. And so right away watching this, I was like, Oh, so birdie's going to be always the kind of the nag and the truth teller. And I think originally she was maybe written like that. She was originally written to um, 
be more outing about Eve, but they wanted Eve. They didn't want that for the audience until kind of the middle of the movie. But I love how every time I kind of thought I knew what I was seeing, it takes a more naturalistic approach to it. It, 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 it mm. doesn't. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I was really, I was really surprised at how actually less campy it was less. It was not the thing I thought I was seeing. Uh, it well, was more moving. I th- I think it is a moving movie. I mean, it's very funny, but it's also emotional. And yeah. I think I think the reason I hesitated when you said campy before is because it's an incredibly self-aware movie and the characters are really self-aware. Like these are people who all on some level know that they are performing. I mean, you know, and are and when they forget it for a second, another character reminds them that they're performing, you know. You're too short for that gesture. Besides, it went out with Mrs. Fisk. I mean, like the the, the real the real way that um Addison destroys Eve at the end is in a way by saying to her, You're not as good an actress as you think you are. Like you're great mm-hmm. on stage, but but as a person, you're not quite pulling this off as well as you have to. And you know, Margot is constantly being reminded um, by by other characters, whether it's Bill or or Lloyd or um, uh, you know even um, even Birdie or Addison that um, she's being a kind of oversized version of herself to create an effect. You know, they, they say things like, I've seen you like this before, um, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the party uh, when Lloyd comes in and, and uh, ungrammatically, by the way, for a playwright says, what has or is about to happen? Um, <laughs> which always makes me think like, uh, you're not that good a writer. I bet well, he also, he also named his plays aged in wood and footsteps on the ceiling. So I love right. aged in wood. <laughs> and, and, remembrance which you just know is a really boring one see i don't i don't think all about eve is campy at all i actually i don't think betty davis's performance to me reads campy at all but i was no. i'm interested in the revival of her after baby jane and right. how mm-hmm. and how the and how really the gays kind of took it and kind of back cataloged her into this camp icon and that's and that's why i was wondering when you were watching this and everyone knew all of the lines almost as if they were viewing it kind of like like a rocky or picture film they were anticipating the line and already laughing and celebrating it you know kind of reclaiming it in a, and putting it in a certain canon that i don't and that's, i think that's fine i think that's beautiful i think that there's love and adoration towards it but it's just and i do think it has to do maybe with the betty davis again of it all you know well, in her 60s well, yeah. in the 60s and also i mean i think there is this if you go back into gay history in like the the late 50s and 60s and even early 70s um when more people were in the closet and like homosexuality was at least in places like New York and San Francisco, um, largely communicated in kind of shared cultural references. Like you were supposed to have seen certain performances. You were supposed to appreciate certain things. You were supposed to know certain things. And all about Eve was absolutely one of those things that you were supposed to know about it. A touchstone. Yeah, absolutely a touchstone. And and part of it is because, you know, Addison certainly reads as gay, you know, in his wit and in his acidity. And, uh, you know, despite his apparent sexual interest in, in women, 
the sort of showdowns between Margot and Addison were like encoded gay bitchery, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's something that like gay men absolutely 50 or 55 years ago would have intuited. And I, I think that's, that's part of the reason that it got this to me, slightly undeserved reputation for camp was, was mm-hmm. the idea that, that, you know, all about Eve was one kind of movie on the surface. But if you, if you really spoke its language, you knew that something else was going on. I distinctly remember Addison crossing you off my guest list. What are you doing here? Dear Margot, you were an unforgettable Peter Pan. You must pray it again soon. Uh, you remember Miss Caswell, don't you? I do not. How do you do? We've never met. Maybe that's why. Miss Caswell is an actress, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art. Well, I love when Addison DeWitt defines gay people. I mean, I, in this in the celluloid clause of the documentary, they also reference this as a gay history as Eve being kind of a lesbian icon possibly. Totally. And I just this in the end of the movie the, during their showdown when he talks about you're an improbable person, Eve, and so am I. We have that in common. Also a contempt for humanity, an inability to love and be loved, insatiable ambition and talent. We deserve each other. Like all these cliches that to me, I was like, oh, this is Addison defining fags to everybody in this moment. And that they were these lost vipers who had to like cling on to each other in the darkness. That was so, it's amazing. Completely. Like it's, they're like, it's sort of gay people as theater people slash vampires. Like, you know, we're we're not like normal human beings and and we deserve each other and all of that. And yeah, you're totally right about Eve herself, because in the last scene of the movie, um, which is like if if you want to read Eve as a kind of almost murderous lesbian trope, you Uh know, the, the when we finally see her kind of alone and unguarded in her her apartment or her hotel suite, whatever, after she has won the the Sarah Siddons Award, you know, her voice seems to drop an octave into this kind of butch, like, register of like... Who are you? Miss Harrington. What are you doing here? And and (laughs) you you kind of get the sense that, um, including in her own narrative, Eve has never seemed particularly interested in men. They're tools to get her what she wants which is fame and opportunities and great parts but the scenes in the movie like she's interested in Margot, like yeah that, that's her like that like that's the real dynamic um you know th- th- sh- that's the person she wants to kind of beat not addison so it, it's it's made you you could say that she's a kind of encoded lesbian you could also say that she is in a way like a woman's woman, that she's, she's just a woman whose primary interest is other women. There's also, I also found that speech at the, near the end of the party that she gives about applause, very queer. Why, if there's nothing else, there's applause. I've listened backstage to people applaud. It's like, like waves of love coming over the footlights and wrapping you up. Imagine, to know every night that different hundreds of people love you. They smile, their eyes shine, you've pleased them. They want you, you belong. 
Just that alone is worth anything. You know, this idea of just knowing that you belong. Like, she does seem like an orphan in search of a home, which, at least for me as a queer person who, like, ended up in the theater, it really was always for me. You know, and that moment I was like, oh, because I had never even thought about her as a queer character or a lesbian character until I was doing research for this episode and found out that that's like a big line of thinking around this movie. And then it kind of colored my view of it. And this is my second favorite movie of all time. I've seen it at least 100 times in my life since I was 12. But it really struck me this time when she talked about applause in that scene. And I was like, oh, yeah. I, I like thinking of her as a, as a a queer character, like some different in that way. Well, the the interesting thing to me is like why why is Eve a villain? What why is she um, is she you know it, Little Miss Evil or, or whatever mm-hmm. um, you know Margot calls her Eve Evil Little Miss Evil. It's like she is a villain, I think, but mm. it's not because she's ambitious. It's not hmm. because she wants things because after all, Margot is like, you know, we hear that she sort of stepped out of the chorus line at the, you know, she made her first appearance at the age of two and she's been dazzling people ever since. So like Margot is obviously incredibly ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the only moment in the movie that Margot has that, doesn't ring true really is that kind of awful speech that she has to give in the car about you know if if you don't have a man you're not a woman you're just a thing with a suite of french provincial furniture and you know right like i i don't really it's the only thing in the movie i don't really believe because i don't believe that she believes it you know she she's never it, i think it's self-pity but but uh, and insecurity but i think like but part of that monologue of- is so great though, right? Like I feel like you could slice that monologue in half. Part of it is a perfect. And then the end is such a I guess a contemporary letdown, but right. Um I think that's true. There there's great stuff in it. But but like Eve is terrible because of the way she treats other people, not yes. because of what she wants. Right. And the way that she uses is willing to destroy other people in order to get what she wants. Her her methods are what are so contemptible, especially around poor Karen Richards, who's just trying to be a wife of the theater. But see, but, I think I think Margot's horrible. I mean, what I love about this is at the beginning, Margot's horrible. She's so unpleasant to, to the people around. You know, she's been on this pedestal for so long that hmm. she's she's kind of nasty to everyone. I mean, I think she's delightful, though Margot would hate this podcast with what she says about fans at the beginning of the movie. She goes off about (laughs) autograph fiends. They're not people. Those little beasts that run around in packs like coyotes. They're your fans, your audience. They're nobody's fans. They're juvenile delinquents. They're mental defectives. They're nobody's audience. They never see a play or a movie even. They never indoors long enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. But she seems, I mean, I love Margot and I think she's. Don't get me wrong, I think she's delicious, but I also don't think she's an angel or or kind. But but the thing is, when she's being awful, and I think this is the thing that makes her not awful, she always knows she's being awful. And she's direct. You think it's better to be direct in your nastiness? There are times in the movie where people say to her various versions of stop being awful, and she kind of 
she, she only fights back when she thinks she has real reason to be awful. Um, but she kind of knows that she's, you know, she knows how she is. She knows how she mm-hmm. behaves and, and, and like, she's very smart. She's a really smart character. Uh, Nick, what I want to ask you is how hard do you relate to as an actor to the moment in the, in the, um, uh, ladies room at the cub room where um, uh, Eve says to Karen, I do much more for a part that good. <laughs> I, I mean, that's one of my favorite lines, which is Cora's my part. My, what my first play ever was in San Francisco. It was a production of The Merchant of Venice directed by Daniel Fish, my first professional job. And there was a brilliant actor named Danny Shea who was in it with me, who's like San Francisco theater royalty. And I was very young playing Bassanio, the male ingenue role. And every time I would walk into the dressing room, he would grab his powder puff and go, Cora's my part. No one can play her like I can. (laughs) (laughs) And it was amazing (laughs) every day. So um, I do, I do identify with it. I would do so much for a part that good. I mean, I had a big, I had a cry in this movie. I've been kind of angry at the theater since the shutdown or thinking I hate the theater because I hate Zoom theater so much. And I hate, I don't know, everything that actors, I've been mad at Actors Equity. I've just been mad at the whole thing. Not that it's the theater's fault, but I've been kind of like, I hate the theater. And then I watched this movie and Betty Davis's line uh, at the cub room when she says, He does not exaggerate. I was good about her performance that night, I lost it. Because those nights are so powerful. That thing of like knowing you're good and knowing your worth in it. When you feel that is so huge. And for everything that Margot is under, all the pressure with Bill and Eve, I that's my favorite scene with Margot. I think she's so magnanimous and so beautiful and happy. And I was just so happy for her and it made me miss doing it. It made me miss the glass house tavern. It made me miss Joe Allen's. It just made me miss it in a way I haven't let myself. Cause this whole thing has been so debilitating and awful. Yeah. It's um, more than almost any movie of the period. And certainly more than um, uh, most Hollywood movies about the theater. It really seems to understand theater and it seems to understand New York at that time. Like it sort of gets that, theater people are are amazing creatures and what it kind of costs you and what it fills you with to put yourself on a stage every night you know it's that that it's this that's really kind of aside from everything else this this physical athletic endeavor that that kind of reshapes your days it reshapes your nights you you mm-hmm. you live on a different calendar than other people you live on a different 24-hour clock than other people um uh yeah and it reshapes your psyche in a very specific way and i've yeah. known eve i've known eve harrington's and by that i just mean people who i mean and a couple who i went to school with who are very famous now who when you would see them coming down the hall you moved out of the way because they were going to do whatever it took to be famous and I just, I never wanted to fuck with people like that. Because just say they, their names. Nobody, <laughs> nobody will know. I won't tell. <laughs> just a couple friends. Listen, just a couple friends here. And you know what? I, I have, I have like, I have, I have, I can't even barely have enough ambition to pour water for myself, <laughs> but I absolutely adore those monsters. And so that's maybe why 
I, I, I have such sympathy for Eve. I really do. I have such sympathy for Eve. Do we really believe? Uh, answer us. Answer us this. Do we really believe that all of Eve's motivations were for her her self success, or do you do do we think that she actually really did love Margot? And really did worship her. I mean, we know that she was lying about a lot of this, but what do we think? I don't know, little Gertrude Schlafinski. To begin with, your name is not Eve Harrington. It's Gertrude Schlafinski. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the weird... I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie um, A Place in the Sun, the George Stevens movie. Yes, we did for our uh, Elizabeth Taylor episode earlier this year, yes. Well, it's a it's a weird comparison to make to um, All About Eve, I know, but they came out at almost the exact same moment. And, like, I feel sympathy for Eve in the same way that I feel sympathy for Montgomery Clift, um, because both of those movies... Like articulate so beautifully the pain of wanting something so much and having your nose pressed right up against the glass and knowing that on the other side of it lies this whole world that you want to be a part of and that you absolutely believe you could master if they would just let you in the door. Um, right. And, and, and you know, in a place in the sun, of course, it, it turns someone into literally a, a murderer. Um, but I, you know, I do the Eve that is at the beginning of the movie who comes in and tells her whole story to, um, Margot and Birdie and Karen and, and Lloyd and Bill, the whole gang, um, that turns out to be a lie. It was just mom and dad and me. I was an only child. Used to make believe a lot when I was a kid. Acted out all sorts of things. What they were isn't important, but somehow... Acting and make-believe began to fill up my life more and more. It got so I couldn't tell the real from the unreal. Except that the unreal seemed more real to me. I'm talking a lot of gibberish, aren't I? Not at all. Farmers were poor in those days. That's what Dad was, a farmer. I had to help out. So I quit school, went to Milwaukee, became a secretary in a brewery. When you're a secretary in a brewery, it's pretty hard to make believe you're anything else. Everything is beer. It wasn't much fun, but it helped at home. And there was a little theater group there, like a drop of rain on the desert. That's where I met Eddie. He was a radio technician. We played Lillian for three performances. That was awful. Then the war came, and we got married. Eddie was in the Air Force. They sent him to the South Pacific. You were with the OWI, weren't you, Mr. Richards? That's what who's who says. Well, with Eddie gone, my life went back to beer. Except for a letter a week. One week he wrote me he had a leave coming up. I'd save my money and vacation time and went to San Francisco to meet him. But Eddie wasn't there. They forwarded the telegram from Milwaukee, the one that came from Washington, to say that Eddie wasn't coming at all, that Eddie was dead. Yeah, you can say, like, okay, she's a sociopath from the first, but you also have to remember the backstory to that, which is 
She has apparently been standing out there every night for weeks, yeah. waiting for her moment. And she, on that level, she is sort of a fascinating, formidable, like, I can't fully hate someone who wants something that no. badly. You know? And she's obviously talented because, I mean, she when she steps in to read with Miss Caswell, she was ready for it. She obviously has the ability if her star shot up that high that fast. Right. Like right. I the would love I would love. I love that in the movie you never see either of them perform. You see Betty Davis bow and you right. see Eve rehearse a bit, but you never see them act and it leaves that to the imagination, which I love. And we're talking and- about a commute a community that is so small and insular. You know, and and good and, and and being kind doesn't get you anywhere. Come on, we know this. Just being right, kind right. and gent- genteel doesn't. You're not gonna you're not gonna be a leading actress by being like that. You know, she, she's a nobody. She has to do something, and I applaud that she really. You know, my All God, right, this is like a home. I know. Listen to this, <laughs> you e- e- evil <laughs> bitch. I applaud for her home alone scheming plan. That really works. It works. I she's mean, really the Macaulay Culkin of nineteen. 19- 50 absolutely i love this comparison thank you with that thank you i'm just saying it works i applaud that i mean again we all press our noses against the glass and be like just on this other side is is riches and fame you know i'm this close but i have no idea how to actually see the thing mark if you only knew the things that we did to get a podcast this massively successful oh honey the bodies in our wake (laughs) i'm sure they're like just out of camera range yes i'm (laughs) wow i I guess i am an even apologist i have to say i think karen's the real of it all well, what? I, I tweeted this as, <laughs> as a joke, but like there there is a read that um, Karen is the actual villain. Yes, of thank All you, Eve. thank you. Because look what she does she she yeah, brings the poison person into the community in the first place. She mm-hmm. she traps Margot in their miserable country house or wherever they live in Connecticut, so that she misses that performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you she know. drains a she drains the gas tank. Come on, Karen is a Karen. I mean, Karen true Karen. blue. Oh, this is where it started. This is where it all started. We have uncovered this. But my favorite moment of the entire film, and there are a couple of these. I, you brought it up earlier, Mark, about how the film is self aware. Is at the cub room when Karen lets out that laugh uh, when she gets after it for herself when Margot says. I don't want to play Cora. What? Now, wait a minute. You're always so touchy about his plays. It isn't the part. It's a great part and a fine play. But not for me anymore. Not for a four-square, upright, downright, forthright married lady. What's your being married got to do with it? It means I've finally got a life to live. I don't have to play parts I'm too old for. Just because I've got nothing to do with my nights. Oh, Lord, I know you've made plans. I'll make it up to you, believe me. I'll, I'll tour a year with this one anything. Only only you do understand, don't you? <laughs> What's so funny? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? Everything. Everything's so funny. It's just this dramatic irony that Mankiewicz 
it's like Karen is feeling what the audience is feeling and we're all feeling it together. It's an amazing moment. But it's so, it's also so like, oh my God, I sold my soul for nothing and I, I didn't have to, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, as a playwright's wife, the lowest form of celebrity. <laughs> yes, you, know, you are the Karen. I, I, I am Karen, yeah. But, but I, I'm still, the Karen in the story. No, but here's this is why I do feel something because you still are part of the, you still are very much, not just tangentially a part of this world, you're very <laughs> in the mix of this world, the writer <laughs> of it all. But Karen's got nothing. I mean, she's, she's one divorce away from being under E. You know, she, right. she has no power. So all of the, you know, she she has the least agency of this film. And I actually, so as much as I'm like, oh, Karen, you're the nasty one. I also feel like so bad for Karen because she's, you know, she's grandfathered into this, into this place that no one really cares about her opinion. Don't you, you just right. want to go and she have lunch? She has to find power. Don't you just want to go have lunch with her and Margot at 21, though? Margot and I were having lunch at 21. Just like girlfriends, with hats on. Like I would love to know up. when you think what what did they go on to? Like you know, I assume that Miss Caswell actually did go on to have a very nice career in television. I hope she did because mm. she's not a bad person. And you know, um, Eve clearly goes on to great fame, and Margot clearly stays famous. But what does Karen do? Like. She you know, re-wallpapers to, the house in Connecticut. That's right. She gets that country house turned up every five years. Projects! Is, is, is that marriage really going to last, though? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Because I think there's big unanswered things in the movie that are sort of interesting. Hmm. Like, minor stuff, like, do Margot and Bill get married by the yes. end of the movie? I um, think so. And, but also, like, was... Do you think uh, Lloyd was having an affair with Eve? Uh, I don't think he was having an affair. I think the way that Eve breaks down with Addison uh, tells us that. Um, But I think that there's kind of an emotional or like one of those like, you know, showmance, crush, platonic things happening between the two of them. Right. Like there's something that was worrisome enough so that Karen arranged that lunch with Addison, Addison that he yeah. refers to um and and like and and arranged it because she was in search of information as as he as he tells Eve so I had lunch with Karen not three hours ago as always with women who try to find out things she told more than she learned <laughs> but that I, moment you're right that moment between Karen and Lloyd when he says that bitter cynicism of yours is something you've acquired since you left Radcliffe. That cynicism you refer to, I acquired the day I discovered I was different from little boys. Like, a, yeah. that's a good moment for Karen. Yeah, but that, I mean, it shows you the rift between them. You know, that she is kind of drifting closer to Margoness in a in a positive way for her, I think. Right. Which is funny because she starts as this kind of um, tiger wife in a way who, like... She's the first person really uh, to yell at Margot um, when mm-hmm. she says, you know. I find these wisecracks increasingly less funny, aged in what happens to be a fine and distinguished play. That's my loyal little woman. Well, the critics thought so. The audiences certainly think so. Packed houses, tickets four months in advance. I can't see that Lloyd's plays have hurt you any. I yeah. mean, that I love that because that that sort of suggested 
a lot of after show conversations or after rehearsal conversations when Lloyd went home and like bitched and moaned to Karen about Margot, um, you know, totally, which, you know, happened the like, Oh, I mean, well, that's the whole thing. His whole takedown of uh, actors is just a body and a voice. <laughs> that whole fight between Margot and Lloyd is like, who is something I've felt so many times when they really, I mean, directors feel it too, when they really think that you don't have an independent thought that you are just a, I mean, my friend Betty Gilpin says that they often think that we're flesh bots, you know, <laughs> that right. you just wind us up. We're just robots with flesh. And well, oh, I don't know I what's wrong with that comeback. because I think Eve is a flesh bot and she can <laughs> access anything if you just program her. Right. And that's why I love my Evie. It's just That's a little true. robot actor. All playwrights should be dead for 300 years. That would solve none of their problems because actresses never die. The stars never die and never change. You may change this star anytime you want for a new and fresh and exciting one, fully equipped with fire and music anytime you want, starting with tonight's performance. This is for lawyers to talk about. These concerns are all of the play contract that you cannot rewrite or ad lib. Are you threatening me with legal action, Mr. Fabian? Are you breaking the contract? Answer my question. Who am I to threaten? I'm a dying man. I don't hear you. I said I'm a dying man. Not until the last drugstore has sold its last pill. I shall never understand the weird process by which a body with a voice suddenly fancies itself as a mind. Just when exactly does an actress decide they're her words she's saying and her thoughts she's expressing? Usually at the point when she has to rewrite and rethink them to keep the audience from leaving the theater. It's about time the piano realized it has not written a concerto. <laughs> it's pretty great, though, because you do get the sense that everyone in that world, playwrights, actresses, aspiring actresses, um, uh, they all want... To, they all want respect. They all want to be seen as, you know, intelligent and autonomous. Even like that great passing reference that Birdie makes, you know, yes. uh, to the wardrobe woman when, when she says, May I be so bold as to say something? Have you ever heard of the word union? Behind in your dues, how much? I haven't got a union. I'm slave labor. Well? But the wardrobe women have got one, and next to a tenor, a wardrobe woman is the touchiest thing in show business. Oh, oh. She's got two things to do. Carry clothes and press them wrong. And don't let anybody try to muscle in. Like, it's all about needing to be appreciated. And or when Bertie says... And as for being fifth rate, I closed the first half for 11 years and you know it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, this career that isn't even her career anymore really means something to her. And that's why, in so many ways, Bill is the least interesting character in the movie because he's the only one with no interior. You, you, he's just this kind of gorilla. Like you, <laughs> you never really hear that. Like he's worried about his direction or he's concerned about his career. He's just like basic, dumb, straight male, like forward motion. I can't believe which, Betty Davis which I married fucking him. love about this movie is that Betty Davis made, married him in, in real, real life. life yes. Yeah. After the which, actor, I, I read a quote from Celeste Holm that they had uh, a party a couple days in, or right before they started shooting in San Francisco. 
And she said, Betty saw Gary and Gary saw Betty. And from then on, none of the rest of us even existed. Betty hated Celeste, I guess. I guess that's the one person she despised. Right, well, there's that great story that, you know, uh, Celeste Helm walked on the set the first day Mm -hmm. and said good morning to everyone. And Betty Davis said, oh, shit, good manners. (laughs) And and like thereafter, they had nothing to do with each other. Here's like the, the amazing piece of trivia, if you can call it that, that I've always held on to. I don't I don't know if this is true or not, but um like I'm so in awe of what actors do, stage actors and film actors, because I think those are completely different kinds of pressure, but my God, like you have to deliver. You always have to deliver in the moment. And I read that Betty Davis did her entire part in All About Eve in thirteen days. Yeah. Like I think that, it might be sixteen. But 13, yeah. 16. Yeah. But to me, it's like for this monumental thing that we're still talking about 70 years later. And that yeah. seems so incredibly worked through. I mean, you know, in that great scene where before the party starts, she has that huge fight with Bill. But there is also a separate fight she is having with the bowl of chocolates and whether she is going to take one and oh. put it in How? her mouth. And- bowls, 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 everywhere bowls. Well, we did an episode, we did a fun episode, everyone can go back and download it last year, just on Betty Davis, with a great uh, movie and TV writer named LaToya Morgan, who's been obsessed with Betty Davis her entire life. And something LaToya brought up to us, which I've I've been watching in Betty Davis films ever since, is how Betty Davis will do everything she can to not give you her eyes. And then when she finally does, and in that scene that you're referencing, her dealing with the chocolates and finding her way around the room, she doesn't want to look up. She lets her hair get in front of her eyes. She does all these things. And then finally she comes up. As it happens, there are particular aspects of my life to which I would like to maintain sole and exclusive rights and privileges. For instance, what? For instance, you. And the whole run-up, that's the whole run-up to it's going to be a bumpy night. And it's so felt that line is so repeated and cliched and all of these things but her anxiety about eve and her insecurity in her relationship and that and the two martinis she had by herself like that bubbling up of all of that is so real and felt throughout that scene that when she tells you that it's earned and real and true well it's almost like she's making the decision with the with the picking of the chocolates like am i gonna have a bumpy night like, am I going to not be bad Margot or am I going to be good Margot? And then, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And that whole scene is her being like, okay, time to fuck some shit up. Yeah. Right. Am I hearing and, what I need to hear from him or am I not? Right. And then the bumpy night line is like, again, her saying like, okay, I'm going to get into character and this is the character I'm going to like, I, I, the information I've gotten in the last five or 10 minutes this is the character I am choosing to react to that through. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. And let's talk about, let's just get into it. The 28 minute, how, how long is it? Wait, I wrote it down. It's a fucking like 32 minute party scene. The tent pole of this movie. And it is some of the most delicious cinema ever created. Yeah. I mean, Joe Mankiewicz gets sort of, 
discounted a lot by auteurists because they say he's primary he's more of a writer than a director uh you know and his movies are more about words than about images but like the fluidity of that Mm. scene and and the way it moves from room to room and upstairs to downstairs like you understand the geography of that apartment you understand the rhythm of that party you understand the space you understand the the sort of ebb and flow of like when the party's really in full swing and when it's dying down um it's an incredible sustained piece of movie making and of course a beautiful piece of writing i can't get over i mean i think it might be the last shot of thelma ritter and we can't even play it on here because it's a completely silent moment. But with Betty Davis drunk with her martini at the piano. My favorite. And Thelma tries to give her the coffee. And they and she ends up taking the olive and putting it into the coffee. It's right. some it's a it's Buster Keaton worthy in their movement and timing of that. But there's also right, something then- that Thelma Ritter knows she's not gonna drink the coffee. Do you know what I mean? Like she she knows mm-hmm. her so well that she knows that she can't stop this night and she can't stop. Uh, you know her but mistress. She's gonna give her. She's gonna give gonna her the exit anyway. ramp. Yep. Yeah, try. Right. I mean, and, and then like layered on top of that is just that beautiful two line exchange. Many of your guests have been wondering when they may be permitted to view the body. Where has it been laid out? It hasn't been laid out. We haven't finished with the embalming. Best like, line. If I wrote two ever. sentences that good, I would be like. Well, that's it for the day. Like, <laughs> there we I'm go. putting my feet up and watching Netflix because, like, I've done my work. What is what is it she says to Eve at the end of the at the end of the party when she's going to leave? When Betty goes to leave the party, and she says, "Don't get up, and please stop acting as if I were the queen mother." I'm sorry, I didn't Outside mean... of a beehive, Margot, your behavior would hardly be considered either queenly or motherly. You're in a beehive, pal, didn't you know? We're all busy little bees, full of stings, making honey day and night. Aren't we, honey? Margot, really? Please don't play governess, Karen. I haven't your unyielding good taste. I wish I could have gone to Radcliffe, too, but Father wouldn't hear of it. He needed help behind a notions counter. I'm being rude now, aren't I? Well, should I say, ain't I? You're maudlin and full of self-pity. You're magnificent. How about calling it a night? And you pose as a playwright. A situation pregnant with possibilities, and all you can think of is everybody go to sleep. It's a good thought. It won't play. As a non-professional, I think it's an excellent idea. Excuse me. Undramatic, perhaps, but practical. Happy little housewife. Cut it out. This is my house, not a theater. In my house, you're a guest, not a director. Then stop being a star and stop treating your guests as your supporting cast. Now let's not get into a big hassle. It's about time we did. It's about time Margot realized that what's attractive on stage need not necessarily be attractive off. All right. I'm going to bed. You be host. It's your party. Happy birthday. Welcome home. And we who are about to die salute you. Need any help? To put me to bed. Take my clothes off. Hold my head. Tuck me in. Turn out the lights and tiptoe out. 
Eve would, wouldn't you, Eve? If you'd like. I wouldn't like. She never really lets Eve have it, but the kind of underhanded, like, very subtle, these digs at her, and from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs, that geography of the attack is so yep. amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and then also in the middle of it, that she has this kind of private, funny interlude with Max, the producer, in the kitchen. Yes, um, yes. Where in the pantry? She, yeah, in the pantry, where... First of all, I love that Margot, you know, knows where the Broma Seltzer is kept. Like, yep. uh, we'll get it herself. Right, we'll get it herself. And like, one of the things that Betty Davis is uh, so brilliant at playing is varying levels of drunkenness. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's the drunken maudlin self pity uh, at the piano. There's the just pounded down two martinis and I'm ready to kill thing at the beginning of the party. And there's the theater drunk level of like, I love everyone, uh, you know. I love you, Max. I really mean it. I love you. Come to the pantry. She loves me like a father. Also, she's loaded. It's so perfect. It's so and great. And he's so gets, wonderful. She kind of gets her druthers back and makes a little plan in that scene. Yep. You know, makes a little plan to get rid of Eve that actually isn't terrible. That will just put Eve on a different path that will be out of her fucking house. You know? Exactly. And it's cool. I love that. It's I cool love and that it's never I've forgotten about it. And it's never so, like you said, it's never, she, you always think that it's going to turn into this huge melodrama. And especially that scene was like, here it comes. I'm going to, you know, it's going to go so over the top. And it's like, no, Eve's just trying to play it like anyone would play it. This person's kind of weird. This person seems to be encroaching on my life and doing slightly inappropriate things, but she's still a young girl. Okay. Like, let's just get her a job and get her away from me. But it's like she doesn't yeah. know all that we know, and that's the some of the, what are the joy intention of watching this and the real and and it's and then until the very end, it's still kind of I don't know real world. Is that weird for to say for this movie? No, it's very. It, I think it's very realistic in that people in ways that people don't remember it. But also the contrast with the other rising actress, Miss Caswell. <laughs> And Marilyn Monroe just like slam dunking three or four punchlines like right in a row. And I'm sure she was a pain in the ass to shoot with as she was on everything. But man, those jokes are good. Right. And she lands them. I mean, she's really, really good in that that movie. I I think a lot of the the gay love for All About Eve comes from that party scene Hmm. um, because Mm -hmm. it's just the like the highest level of bitchy insults i mean one of my favorite things is is when um she when uh margo introduces miss caswell eve this is an old friend of mr dewitt's mother miss caswell miss harrington um like that's just like you know that that's so like one old queen being completely savage about another old queen having a much younger boyfriend. I mean, it's it's so just good. It's perfect, you know. It's just perfect. And 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 you know, a lot of Margot's great lines are about age. You know, when she comes mm-hmm. in and says milkshake, um, you know, it, it, it's like that's her way of saying how incredibly bothered she is by the fact that Eve's younger and 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 as. Margot says she's about to be 40 and she's, you know, 
Three months ago, I was 40 years old. 40. Four old. <laughs> that slipped out. I hadn't quite made up my mind to admit it. Now I suddenly feel as if I've taken all my clothes off. It costs her something. And uh, Marilyn's great, great line. I'm afraid Mr. DeWitt would find me boring before too long. You won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to talk. <laughs> right. Like, it's just so, I, oh, that scene. And, and you know, uh, Addison saying. A waiter. And that isn't a waiter, my dear. That's a butler. Well, I can't yell old butler, can I? Maybe somebody's name is Butler. You have a point. An idiotic one, but a point. <laughs> God, it's... And one of the great offstage characters in film history, in my opinion, the movie star who shows up. Right, right. And we only see her coat. Arrives right. and leaves. Oh, that's Thelma's last scene, is when she comes to collect the coat from Karen. Well, that's... Right. Like maybe she... Maybe maybe Birdie dies under the whole pile of coats. Or what <laughs> like, if Birdie... She suffocates. Or what if Birdie gets thing. revolutionary plastic surgery for that time and is really the sleeping girl in Eve's apartment? <laughs> Think on She's that. Barbara Bay. Back on I, the board. myself Phoebe, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's <it's>, Birdie, baby. <laughs> You know, I mean, nothing is in the movie without a reason, and I think as as you said, the the great unseen character, the movie star, pays off in a weird way in the Saracen's acceptance speech scene, where you learn that um, Eve is is going off to Hollywood, like she, yeah. she, she, and you almost sense that like, oh, she got the idea for her next thing by by realizing that you know as as grand as it is to be a Broadway star, look what happens when a movie star sweeps into a party. Right. You know? Okay. So Mark, so nothing, so everything's in there for a reason, but how, so you're already saying you, you don't like that. The iconic monologue she gives in Karen's car, <laughs> or you don't like the end of the monologue where she's like, it doesn't matter what you got as long. If you can't get a casserole out of the oven for that hobby of yours, you ain't right. nothing. So what do we feel about his about this romance? Margot and Bills. The, that seems to propel a lot of... That seems to strangely propel the action, but again, not as much as I thought it would. Not as much tension, which I, I so appreciate, right? It's not overdone, but how think, do we feel? I mean, I don't think that Gary Merrill is an interesting actor. I don't think anyone oh. would say that. But I think the idea of this 40-year-old star and her 32-year-old director being this kind of long-standing couple who put up with each other's difficulties and are very much in love clearly and Margot is never punished the way a lot of women in movies at that time would be um for having a younger boyfriend it's not made to be pathetic or embarrassing mm. for her i think that's pretty uh striking for the time um and also another thing that's really striking for the time is they are very clearly having sex i mean yes. that's a sexual relationship and they're not yeah. married and nothing is made of it and it's just like of course they're having sex i mean they're this they're a couple and how nice that they finally decide to get married but you know it's really interesting that there's no hint of punishment or judgment around that in 1950 that's pretty unusual the other, I wonder if you know if this is true, but the lore I know of that scene in the car, 
is that Betty Davis demanded that she turn the music on the radio because she didn't want to be underscored and she wanted to decide when she turned it on and when she turned it off. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but it would be totally characteristic of her, her shrewdness and her awareness of how a performance of hers could be, um, manipulated without her consent or changed in a way without her consent. You want it on? Doesn't matter. I detest cheap sentiment. Karen. Mm -hmm. No, thank you. I've been being very pleasant this weekend. We've all been a little tense lately. Come to think of it, I haven't been very pleasant for weeks. For that, I'm truly sorry. More than any two people I know, I don't want you and Lloyd to be angry with me. We're never deeply angry. We just get mad the way you do. We know you too well. And so many people know me. I wish I did. I wish someone would tell me about me. You're Margot. Just Margot. What is that? Besides something spelled out in light bulbs, I mean. Besides something called a temperament, which consists mostly of swooping about on a broomstick and screaming at the top of my voice. Infants behave the way I do, you know. They carry on and misbehave. They'd get drunk if they knew how. When they can't have what they want. When they feel unwanted or insecure or unloved. What about Bill? What about Bill? He's in love with you. More than anything in this world, I love Bill. And I want Bill. And I want him to want me. But me, not Margot Channing. And if I can't tell him apart, how can he? Well, why should he and why should you? Bill's in love with Margot Channing. He's fought with her, worked with her, and loved her. But 10 years from now, Margot Channing will have ceased to exist. And what's left will be what? Margot, Bill is all of eight years younger than you. Those years stretch as the years go on. I've seen it happen too often. Not to you, not to Bill. Isn't that what they always say? I don't suppose the heater runs if the motor doesn't. It's silly, isn't it? You think they'd fix it so people could just sit in a car and keep warm? About Eve. I've acted pretty disgracefully toward her, too. Well, don't fumble for excuses. Not here and now with my hair down. At best, let's say I've been oversensitive to her. Well, to the fact that she's so young, so feminine and so helpless. To so many things I want to be for Bill. Funny business, a woman's career. The things you drop on your way up the ladder so you can move faster. You forget you'll need them again when you get back to being a woman. It's one career all females have in common, whether we like it or not. Being a woman. Sooner or later, we've got to work at it. No matter how many other careers we've had or wanted. And in the last analysis, nothing's any good unless you can look up just before dinner or 
turn around in bed. There he is. Without that, you're not a woman. You're something with a French provincial office or a, a book full of clippings. But you're not a woman. Slow curtain, the end. Although one thing I've always read about all about Eve is that she had the reputation of uh, uh, being a kind of terror coming in. And I think she and uh, Mankiewicz always both said, nope, it was a perfectly smooth, happy shoot. They loved it. It, it mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't a problem. He wasn't a problem. Uh, she just kind of came in and nailed it. Uh, That's what Ann Baxter said, too. Ann Baxter said that Betty was always very sweet to her and would sometimes greet her on set with a little hiss. Like, she would go, <laughs> and it was like their joke every morning that they would hiss at each other and then go about the day, which is, I think, fabulous. But also, when you think about 16 Days, though, if I think about 16 days, I think, well, that means she was probably shooting four days a week. I bet they gave her one day off a week, and that's a four-week shoot, which is a pretty sizable chunk to shoot a feature, yeah? Yeah, and also, they're long scenes. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the it's not like cut, 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 cut. There, it's a bunch yeah. of like really great set pieces in the dressing mm-hmm. room, the party, you know. The theater. The, right. Uh, so... So you could imagine getting a lot done in a day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, yeah, yeah. I, I love thinking about shooting this. That scene in the theater, oh, another one of my favorite lines. Playing that childish little game of cat and mouse. Not mouse, never mouse. If anything, rat. <laughs> so good. And that scene on the bed between her and Bill, I... I can't get over how much she, I mean, every, all the women in this movie are amazing, but how much she is able to imbue Margot with. If you look at the, the scene herself alone in bed, calling Bill on his birthday versus the scene of her and Bill in bed, like that, that woman contains all of those things is so miraculous to me. What she, what Betty Davis is able to do in the scope of one movie. Right. And, and, her ability to show you what a character is thinking or that the character is thinking and feeling different things or more than one thing at once, especially Mm -hmm. in that scene, the, the, the bed scene that is the, the birthday phone call Mm -hmm. where you can almost see her start to think, okay, Eve has done me a favor, but she's also overstepped. And did she sabotage me by not, reminding me of it and like there's like something is going on in her mind that like it's it's the embarrassment that she didn't remember it's the surprise that eve did it's the suspicion that eve Mm -hmm. did it's gratitude at eve for remembering it's annoyance at eve for not telling her like everything is playing out and she's not forgetting that it's all supposed to be playing out while she's kind of drowsy and done for the day. Uh, yeah. It's mm. like she, she is doing a zillion things in that scene. Now, and, and this she, is why yeah. it's all about Eve, because then Anna's like, how is she going to get out of this? And just perfectly. She comes in and she's like, By chance, did you place a call from me to Bill for midnight California time? Golly, I forgot to tell you. Yes, dear, you forgot all about it. Well, I was sure you'd want to, of course, being his birthday. And you've been so busy these past few days. And last night I meant to tell you before he went out with the Richards. I guess I was asleep when you got home. 
Yes, I guess you were. It was, it was very thoughtful of you, Eve. Mr. Sampson's birthday. I couldn't forget that. You'd never forgive me. As a matter of fact, I sent him a telegram myself. And I was like, this is my queen. <laughs> this is your deception queen. This is my deception queen. She is so smart. Well, I just wish I could be just this much smart as Eve. Like, come on. I want to be just as much smart as Birdie because I yep. love it. Almost it like creeps towards horror movie in yeah. the seat in the next bit when Birdie comes in and she says, Well, let's say she thinks only about you anyway. How do you mean that? I'll tell you how. Like, like she's studying you. Like it was a play or a book or a set of blueprints. How you walk, talk, eat, think, sleep. I'm sure that's very flattering, Bertie. I'm sure there's nothing wrong with it. Right. And that's the whole like little teeny single white female moment. I mean, this is the prototype for so many things culturally. Well, and... well Bertie is like Elvira, the housekeeper in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm. Like she knows what's going on. Um, you know, she doesn't have the authority or the power to fix things, but from the beginning, she's got an absolutely clear bead on what the what the problem is and what the power dynamic is. Um, it, it's a, I always love that kind of character um, in in old movies. The character with like all the brains and none of the agency. Yes, yes, and it's always and Thelma Ritter is the master of that that part and also i mean i was looking at her fucking billing and all the press photos for this movie none of them include thelma ritter mm. she's not included in any wow. of that like it's always just the couples and like her billing is way down it's like once they get the full sheet of people she's in the second sized font oh my god you know it's like it's really nuts because the oscars of it all this for all of you who don't know is the only film to ever get four academy award nominations for women in acting parts and I, w I would love to talk to you about the Oscars of it all because it's uh, the, the greatest year for Best Actress ever, 1950. Well, and how amazing what it's shared with. I mean, talk, you know, uh, yeah. with Sunset Gloria Boulevard. Swanson it's just bizarre. For Sunset though. Boulevard, Judy Holliday, who wins for Born Yesterday, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter. And who's the fifth? Uh, oh, good question. Is it... Um... Is it Eleanor Parker for Caged? Is it? Yes, you're right. Eleanor Parker, Caged. There you go. All you're right. right. Um, I get to keep my like gay ID card. <laughs> uh, I, I know that Betty Davis always said that she felt that she and Gloria Swanson split the vote. Um, interestingly, I never heard her say she and Ann Baxter I know. split the vote. So there's, there's a little of Margot in there. But... A little shade. <laughs> but Ann Baxter campaigned really hard to be put in Best Actress instead of supporting. And I think if she was in supporting, maybe Betty would have eked it out. Right. And although, like, it, it's fair for Ann Baxter to have done that. She's absolutely a co-lead. Like, that's a yes, big, it, big She's part. the fucking title character. Right. Right. The movie ends, um, begins yeah, and but ends. I, I know, but this is Margot's story. Yes, she's a title character, but this is specifically Mar Margot, right? Or, yes, yes. I, I don't know. So. it, And I don't know. I guess, no, the last face is uh, Barbara Bates, but it's it's about Eve, Eve, Eve. But see, I, I don't think it's about Eve. Do, don't do, okay, do, what do we think? Do we think that this story is trying to say that there's, uh, the young will always eat the old and that no matter mm. where you are, someone's coming behind you? Is that or what the this story time, is about? You can't fuck with time. You can't the, fuck the with second, time. The well, time will fuck part, with you. <laughs> like the, yeah. the, the second part, I, I think, 
uh, no matter where you are, um, someone's always coming behind you. I mean, that's absolutely true, and and it's it's in a way the point of the very last scene. You know, the yeah. the where 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 Eve is about to get Eved. Um, but <laughs> Eved. but on the other hand, I think you the movie definitely suggests that um, Margot is going to survive and be just fine. That that you know Eve didn't destroy her like she's she's sitting there uh at the awards and Mm -hmm. you know she's got her man um and uh she gets the brutal last word to to oh it's the best nice speechy but i wouldn't worry too much about your heart you can always put that award where your heart ought to be (laughs) Um, uh, so so she lives she's not uh She's not destroyed, and I always thought that that's like that's a great choice for the movie, and one of the reasons it has lasted so long is because it doesn't turn into this kind of only one can win bitch fest. Like it likes Margot right. enough to let her live, and that to me is yeah. the un- unexpected and then the realistic thing of this. And and talk about the Betty Davis eyes of it all. There's something that Betty Davis plays knowingly about the relationship of of entertainment in the theater knowing that there's always a young that's going to come in and be celebrated, but also that she will still have a place. Like I never got a sense that she was defeated. Do you know what I mean? Like right. she well, just moved into another area. By then she had lived through 20 years of being a Hollywood actress. Um, you know, the, the rise and beginning of the fall of the studio system. She had seen actresses come and stay. She had seen actresses come and go. Uh, you know, she had lost parts to people. She had knocked people out of contention for parts. Like she, she knew the score by then. Okay. Well, she, Betty Davis, I mean, I don't even know if we're talking about Betty Davis or Margot at this uh, point. But they're I, I meant same. Betty Davis, but, you know. But she, she, I mean, that's something, actors take note and take heart. Betty Davis was like the 12th choice for Margot. It was originally supposed to be Claudette Colbert, and that's why Ann Baxter was cast, because she looked like such a young Claudette Colbert. But there were so many other people asked to do this before Betty Davis. And then Betty Davis said that it single-handedly revived her career. She was in a huge career slump. That's why I want to talk about this because, and I am not eaved enough to be able to think this through. So Mark, can you help? Um, What? (laughs) This was Betty Davis's, right, first resurgence. But then when you right. look through her film or her, her, the next, her next steps, it kind of doesn't do anything until they, until the, you know, they claim her next resurgence with baby Jane. So I'm, I find it fascinating that everyone's like, Oh, this is this brought up. No, this, this one movie did. And then she has a pile of movies that no one talks about. And then Betty or, you know, baby Jane comes out and everyone's like, this is her, her se- the second coming of Betty Davis. And then again, another pile of movies. Well, no, she made the star after this, which was her ultimate takedown of Joan Crawford that she was nominated for the Oscar for. Right. In and 52. There, there are some nice movies in the 50s that she made, some okay movies. There's a thing called... The Virgin uh, Queen. Mm-hmm. A Catered Affair, if you've ever seen that. It's a sort of lovely oddball thing. But yeah, you're absolutely right that like this did not... This was a huge comeback but not in a way a comeback on which she was able to extend um stick the landing the 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 50s were not a great decade for her and and um uh, you know it's it's really hard to know why that i mean she was getting to an age where you know a lot of 
back then, a lot of actresses, when they hit 40 or 45, just sort of retired. Right. Or they went to television, like Loretta Young, you know, um, yeah. Jane Wyatt, Wyman. Or, uh, so, so, yeah, I don't know why instantly uh, great part after great part, um, you know, didn't come her way. I mean, Catherine Hepburn, uh, who was about the same age, was able to really keep going pretty effectively through the fifties. Um, you know, she, she, she had a number of interesting parts then. Um, and you know, uh, Betty Davis, it's, it's, it's odd that she, I mean, she made some bad choices, but, uh, uh, listen, I just watched dead ringer the other day and it slaps. (laughs) Dead Ringer is fucking amazing. God damn. She plays twin sisters. One kills the other. Watch it, y'all. It's fucking good. It costs like $2.99 to rent, but it's worth it. Fuck. I would that never, movie. like, I've never seen her in a movie ever, including like the real throwaways from the early 1930s when she was doing like five movies a year yeah. where she didn't do at least one really interesting thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're all... I mean, she's my top movie diva ever. Um, I have a hor- horrifying idea to put to both of you. I, while watching this movie this time, all of a sudden realized, I was like, oh, fuck. Ryan Murphy is going to make an origin story called Eve, where we're going to have to watch her in the brewery and do the whole thing, and it's going to be Sarah Paulson, and I just can't <laughs> fucking deal with it. I love Sarah Paulson, but I just can't deal with when Ryan Murphy decides to put his hands on this. Who owns All About Eve? That's the question. It's probably Disney now, weirdly enough, because I think it was a Fox movie. So, oh, fuck. You know, Disney it, Plus, it, here comes so, All so, About so, Eve. So, so may, maybe what we're really looking at is like the animated version of All About <laughs> oh, Eve. Oh, yeah. That I'm here for. The Pixar All About Eve. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Absolutely. The princess treatment. The prince. It's Frozen's All About Eve. <laughs> Okay, so if, Sorry, here's my Chenoweth. question for you. If that was to happen, who would be your today Margot Channing? If it had to happen, we had to do it, who would it be? You're very interested in age, Nick. So are we are we are we are you really having us put uh I mean a my choice is Because I think forty is, is different than the, the forty age. I think forty well, is so much different now though. So much I mean you're true. still twenty five in this day and age when you're forty, so that's true, right? It, it, it's. I think the real casting question there is how, how old is Eve? How old is um, Margot? Like, you know, because are they really? You know, are, are they uh, twenty six and forty? Because that doesn't quite work now. I know that there have been a lot of attempts to update all that Eve. There was supposed to be one, I think, many years ago with. I'm thinking it was maybe Jane Fonda and Cameron Diaz. So that will tell you about when the right time was that was supposed to be set in the world of like morning news. Um, So, so every once in a while people do think of like, is there a way to um, update or freshen all about Eve? And it always founders, I think on like the, the age question and also the, like, why would anyone want to, go near that well we do uh, you guys in a couple days on thursday on turkey day jason and i are covering the lauren bacall of it all with applause on the patreon so there's the one adaptation in the 70s all the applause for lauren bacall and dame penny fuller in that but i just had the thought 
that Tony Collette would be a great Margot Channing. See, I knew you'd win. Am I reading your mail? No, I just knew you would win this game that you thought of. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't Tony Collette be a great yes. Margot Channing, though? Yes. Yes, it'd be it'd be pretty great. I mean, and, yeah. And I think Janet McTeer would do it really great if it was like a play version. I know, I know I that thinking, Gillian Anderson did it, but... I was thinking Olivia Coleman, you know. Ooh, Olivia oh. Coleman would be good. She's We're, a little nice. Right. We're also She's doing, I think, sweet. a lot of our big-eyed goddesses, right? Our so big-eyed ladies. Be, big-eyed ladies to the front. It all has to be the big <laughs> eyes and into the front of the line that kind of t- tells you the story, kind of takes you through those emotions. I, I think Eve, Eve is a hard... In, in a way, because like the the talent pool for actresses who could play a Margot at different ages is so deep. I mean, there are so many great Evan Rachel actresses. Wood as Eve, right? I was thinking like Emma Stone. You know, there's like who's mm-hmm. or or you know uh, Anya Taylor Joy, that young actress who was just in the Queen's Gambit on. on oh yeah, she Netflix. would be amazing. I mean, uh, I'm just in the middle of the Queen's Gambit. I'm taking it very slowly. Good, good going. I'm loving it. It's a lot I'm of fun. Yeah, taking it like a chess game. That would be <laughs> that would be a good casting. Fuck, I know Kate Blanchett was supposed to do the Evil Van Hova production before Gillian Anderson ended up doing it. Both of whom, I think Gillian. I don't. I'm curious. I I never saw the Gillian Anderson of it all, and I love her so much. But I think it's an odd choice for Margot. I don't. I don't think the idea works on stage. I really don't. I think this is a movie. It's a movie about theater, but it's a movie. You need right. close-ups. You need micro moments. You need cutting. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's and it's too weird to have to be watching a really good stage performance about a really good stage actress who, as you say gives performances that we never see which is really yeah. smart it like blurs the lines too much so uh, the the stage thing did not seem like i didn't see it uh but it did not seem like a great idea to me. and i guess yeah, here's yeah. the here's the thing you know as revolutionary as this film was as still current feeling you know 70 years uh later this film still still feels very current still feels very ripe with like emotion I don't know that this is, I don't, I, I don't know that we're in a time and in, in for a long, for a long period of time that we're going to be here to be telling the story of women against women, of women destroying women. You know, I, mm. that's the story that we've, and from here on out, we've, and, and then Sunset Boulevard, like women who age is the story we tell. It's like <laughs> the, the, the characteristic is that you're aging and we don't know what to do with you and you don't know what to do with yourself. I just don't know if we, if that's the current moment right now. Is to be like you're old. Isn't that bizarre? Like, how? Where do we do with you? Right. I, I don't think it's the current moment, but I also don't think that um, All About Eve is in any way a movie that hates women or no. that hates women for being women. So you know, maybe in the hands of uh, a, a woman writer director or a woman writer and a woman director um something interesting could be uh done with it because to me it's a movie about really powerful smart ambitious women um Mm. uh one of whom is a villain you know but that's okay Uh, we we don't want to see movies when (laughs) (laughs) karen Uh, karen uh, but you know, I'm also happy to see it 
left alone. Like, you know, it's, because it does not need updating. No, it's, it's perfect. Because it, as you said, it like it still works. We're still talking about it. It's so perfect. It's so beautiful. I'm going to throw one more moment in there I didn't get to mention that I saw for the first time this time, which is the only moment we get alone with Eve right after Bill leaves the dressing room. And she kind of takes off the wig and there's this ferocious, like, I'm alone moment where she's almost like a wild animal. And then Addison DeWitt comes in and you we see her bottle it up again. It's so small and it's so brilliant. And that's when I was like, oh, fuck, Ann Baxter is a genius. Right. And it sort of connects to, she's not alone in the very last scene of the movie, but there is a moment when she thinks she's alone. Um, yes. Bef- before, before she sees, you know, Phoebe. Um, and... Yeah, Ann Baxter does this really weird thing both times of, like, whatever drops out of her when she's not being looked at, like, the, the her real self when she's alone, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's, because it's just kind of she angry of, and brutish yeah. and, and, you know... It's like she's like Kathy Ames from East of Eden. You know, it's that kind. You think that like there's that level of malevolence possibly inside. of But you know what? I think there's also this thing because she doesn't want to go to the party. And I think with this really there's I think, you know, I think there's a beautiful thing here that says that, you know, that age old saying it's lonely at the top. So Eve has done all of these things and she has alienated everyone to get there. And where maybe Margot is at this middle ground place, but she still has her whole community with her. She still has her whole mm-hmm. support. And what all Eve has is this conniving Addison. And she doesn't want to, she's, she, no, she, uh, she's, she's gained this thing, but she has no love in her life. You know what I mean? So she goes the, to her lonely apartment and she, and I think the things that she has done has caused that, you know, she can't find actual happiness. You can't ever get that with the statue. So you've given me the perfect opportunity to plug my book, but which because I am Eve, I will now do um, like this reminds me of something that Mike Nichols said, which, which everything reminds me of now. Cause I spent like five years on this book, but there's this point in the book where he, um, he goes to college at the university of Chicago and he kind of establishes this, this arch uh, nasty kind of bitchy persona at you know 19 or 20 and but he also starts um sleeping uh like 10 and then 12 and then 16 hours a day and he said about it later um it's just completely exhausting to be a person that many hours a day like that the sheer effort of creating a public persona just Mm. left him with nothing in his tank so he had to sleep all the time and in a way like Mike was not Eve, absolutely not. But, but I think when you have those couple of alone moments um, of Eve, what you're seeing is that that like every single second that she is in the presence of other people, she is having to create herself and to yeah. create a completely false version of who she is. And so, uh, of course, like the second she's alone, she looks like a prize fighter after a 15 round match it mm. just it exhausts her to be this mm. non-existent person mm. 
Oh, I can't wait to read this book. Also, everyone, you should get Mark's previous two books, Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back. Yes. They're two of my favorite uh, books to give as gifts. If you have a film lover in your life and you're like, I don't know what to get them, get them those books. Those are both available right now. <laughs> um, I think this is like the most amazing conversation I could have imagined having about All About Eve, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Did we miss anything, Jay? Hi, Mark, did we miss anything? I'm sure we did, but sure that's the did. great oh. thing about the movie. Like it, it, it unfolds new things to you every time you watch it. But uh, it was a total pleasure, guys, talking to you. It was really fun. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you so Mark. much. Everyone fucking rent All About Eve when you're all filled with turkey and turn it on for the, Put whole, on a gown. the whole family. Put on a gown. Stay at home. <laughs> exactly. Scream at um, your birdie. And join us over at the Patreon to talk about Lauren Bacall and applause and the musical <laughs> version of this. And of course, download uh, our back episode about Betty Davis with Latoya Morgan if you want to learn more about Betty Davis. And have a great holiday, everyone. We're thankful for everyone who listens to this podcast. Stay safe, Battle Angels. Be good. We Be all Thank about you, Eve. Mark. Thank, Thank you. you Mark. Thank you, Mark. Bye.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.